Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. And my guest today, at long last, I've been promising this guy to you for a long time now, it feels like, is Gary Templeton. And before we get started, I just want to make a quick note that if you head over and visit my friends at PassPros.com, they've got some really cool apparel up right now, an ever-growing inventory. We've got t-shirts featuring popular players such as Bill Lee, J.R. Richard, Ellis Valentine, and yes, the Cobra, Dave Parker. And I got an email this week from a friend of mine down in Houston who said that he's been scaring the hell out of his kids with his Dave Parker hockey mask t-shirt. And you've got to admit, that's just some good parenting uh, right there. So you can do that as well. And the best part is that if you enter the code SUPER70, that's S-U-P-E-R-7-0 at checkout, you're going to get five bucks off any apparel item there. Just go to PassPros.com, click on Fan Apparel, and you're going to see an array of uh, really cool t-shirts. And with that said, joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, a three-time National League All-Star and one of the most electrifying shortstops of the 1970s, and I suppose the 1980s as well, for that matter, Gary Templeton. Gary, how are you? Hey, I'm doing fine. Uh, Just sitting here Got a few little honeydews today, but everything is great. <laughs> you got to be careful with those honeydew lists. We got to keep uh, we got to keep our ladies happy. I, I wanted to ask you, Gary. One of one of my favorite things about you, and as I mentioned, uh, you were really one of my favorite players growing up. I love to watch you play, and you, you have one of the great nicknames of all time, Jump Steady. How did you come by that nickname? Well, I came by that. Uh, my relatives in Texas gave me that nickname. You know, it kind of stuck with me throughout my uh, whole life. I got it, I think I was like in about the seventh or eighth grade uh, when I got that nickname, uh, Jump Steady. And it actually came from the song from Aretha Franklin, Rock Steady. And they said I wasn't rocking, I was jumping. And so they <laughs> started calling me Jump Steady. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. It's unique. Nobody else has that one. Right. You know, you you. Uh, I know you live in Southern California now, and you, and you grew up in Southern California. I, at what point, Gary, as you were going through high school, because you were drafted 13th overall in the 74 draft out of high school, at what point in your athletic career as a, as a young guy did you realize that maybe you had what it took to play ball professionally? You know, I, I really didn't know because – you know, I was one of those athletes that all I did is I just went out and I played. Uh, I knew there were scouts that was watching our baseball games. But, you know, I never thought about getting drafted because, you know, my whole thing was go to college, you know, play in college, you know, because I wanted to do that thing. That was part of what I wanted. And so when the draft came, I wasn't even thinking about getting drafted. And then I get a phone call from my high school coach saying, hey, you got drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals. And so my father had played in the old Negro League. And so my father told me, he said, hey, you know, it ain't that many kids get an opportunity to, you know, play professional baseball. And so I turned down my scholarship 
and uh, ended up playing baseball um, because, you know, a number one pick at that time, that was that was great at that particular time to be a number one pick. There's never a bad time to be a number one pick. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, uh, you signed on with the Cardinals and, and went through the minor leagues. didn't take you too long to make your way through the minors, especially coming straight out of high school. You got up to the big leagues in 76 and hit 290, in fact, during 76. And by 77, you're, you're in the All-Star game. That's pretty heady stuff to be uh, coming out of high school in 74 and be playing in the All-Star game in 77. What was your life like d- during that time? Because it seems like those are two different worlds and you got from one to the other real quick. Well, you know, once I got to the minor league system, and, you know, I told them when they signed me, I was like, you know, uh, they took me to the, uh, it's just, it was coincidental that the St. Louis Cardinals was, had came in town to play the Dodgers, so they took me in the locker room. And when I went in the locker room, you know, all the guys were saying hello and stuff. And I told them, look, I'll see you guys in a year or two. And they all start laughing at me and stuff. And I told them, I said, hey, I'll be back to see you. Because I've always had that confidence. And, you know, I think that, you know, when you're a a player that has some greatness, you always have that confidence. And I always had confidence that nobody could beat me because when I was in high school, I worked for the Angels in the clubhouse. And I used to tell Nolan Ryan and, and Rudy May and singer and all of those guys i said i could hit you now <laughs> I said, y'all couldn't get me out because see i was a great right-handed hitter i still think that i left some things on the table by being a switch hitter because from the right side you know i could absolutely hit and if you look at my splits from the right the left as my pro career you'll see that you know the there's a big difference in me hitting so i had so much confidence that you know, I don't care who was out there. They couldn't get me out. And in the minor leagues, when I finally learned, got a feel for hitting left-handed, I mean, you know, to me the game came fairly easy because I was I was really overconfident when it came to, you know, offense. And then defense, I felt like I could catch anything that was hit my direction. Now, did you switch hit in high school, or was that something that the Cardinals wanted you to do? No, the Cardinals wanted me to do it uh, because – you know, of my speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, nah, I never switched it in high school. I was a right-handed hitter, you know, wow. my whole life. You know, I was a right-handed hitter, and the first day I get into rookie ball camp, because I think you have two weeks before that we play games, and the uh, minor league director is like, get on the left side. And I'm like, I don't want to hit left-handed. Get on the left side, so... He told me times that I never did good go on that side, and then he came down and told me to go hit on the left side. And so then I started hitting on the left side every day after that. That's remarkable. I mean, you hit 322 in 1977, and you're taking probably, what, two-thirds of your bats from the left side, somewhere in that range. Right. That's pretty good stuff for a guy that just learned how to hit left-handed. Yeah, I just learned how to hit. I mean... And, I, you know, I, I never did, and to be honest with you, I never did like switch hitting because I felt that there was a number of pitchers on the right-hand side, I mean, that were right-handed, that I could have hit real easily from the right side. 
And, you know, and that was a testament to when I got the 100 hits from both sides of the plate and I needed 12 hits on the right side and I went strictly right-handed for the last two weeks of the season. I needed 12 hits and I got it. I got it real easy and everybody asked me why did, why was I a switch hitter after they seen me hit right-handed against right-handed pitching. Everybody's like, why are you a switch hitter? <laughs> I told them, I said, well, they changed me to a switch hitter. And everybody told me, uh, that year I got 100 hits from both sides, I should be strictly a right-handed hitter. I had no idea. Now, that's really interesting because you you came out of the gate. Uh, it, obviously, your first few years in St. Louis, you came out of the gate crazy strong. You had, I think, just under 600 hits your first three full years in the big leagues. You, you, you led the league in triples in 77, 78, and 79. You're, you're hitting over 300 for three out of your first four full years in the, in the big leagues. What was it like coming up into St. Louis, playing every day on turf? Because one of the things that really fascinates me in writing this book that you know I'm working on about baseball in the 70s is you played right in the heart of the AstroTurf era, which is you know, probably one of the reasons that they wanted you to hit left-handed is to, you know, put the ball on the ground and beat out base hits and, and, and whatnot. But what's the toll that it takes? Because I know it would get really hot there in St. Louis on that turf. And then just the pounding that your body takes, even as a even as a young guy. What was that experience like playing in the National League in the 70s when you were playing all your home games on turf and a good portion of your road games on turf, too? Well, you know, it was fast. I mean, you know, it was a fast-paced game. Uh, and, you know, I think the thing that, that hurt a lot of us back then is they didn't really know that much about turf. All they knew is that if when it rained, <laughs> you could still continue to play. You didn't have to cancel a lot of games. But, you know, they had a ton of uh, concrete underneath that turf. So basically, you was, it was like playing in the street. Because, you know, there was only only the dirt was the only soft part of the uh, the AstroTurf where you had to slide. You know, the bases was cut out. But uh, essentially, you was playing on uh, Astro, uh, on uh, concrete because uh, the, I think in the AstroDome, they had plywood underneath, and it was horrible. It was the only infield that you could get bad hops on, on turf because... You had so many flat spots from uh, the plywood or whatever they had underneath there that, you know, had went bad. But the rest of the league, it was just concrete and it was fast. I mean, it was it was like playing, you know, in the street. And, you know, it made guys, you know, running on turf, he was a little bit faster uh, because, you know, you, you didn't have any much resistance with as far as dirt, but. You know, it was great times. I mean, you know, there was a lot of hits out there. All you had to do when it got wet, if you hit a hard ground ball, it would get through. So uh, it was tough on a lot of our bodies back then. And, uh, you know, when you, especially when you played in the infield and you say playing in St. Louis and you had that hot, humid weather. And, and I think it got a lot better when people learned that, you know, you couldn't play on concrete, you know, for a hundred and you know, maybe 30-some games of your career, <laughs> I mean, in a year. 
So 79, you, you have a terrific year, as I said. The, the 100 hits from each side of the plate, you were the first person to accomplish that. 19 triples, 211 hits uh, on the season, and you had a terrific year, but you weren't voted to start in the All-Star game. And, of course, the famous quote that is attributed to you is, if I ain't starting, I ain't departing. Now, did you actually say that, or is that just something that somebody said and it came back around and the legend is that Gary Templeton said that? Well, it came back around. Uh, basically, uh, what happened was, is uh, after one game, we're playing, and uh, so I was to start a game, and so I went into the uh, radio room to get interviewed, and uh, so Jack Buck, was interviewing me, and he said, if you ain't starting, you ain't departing. And I said, yes, and the next day in the paper, that's exactly what it had in there. Templeton says, if he's not starting, he's not departing. Well, if they're going to give so, you a quote, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good one, I guess. It's famous now, anyway, all these years right. later. It's one, of the most, it's one of the most famous quotes, and all I said was yes, and the next day it was headlined. Jack Buck got you you're in trouble. Starting, you're not starting. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, it turned out to be one heck of a quote. So, well, you know, you were traded famously uh, after the '81 season in a deal where you were the main guy going to San Diego, and San Diego sent uh, Ozzie Smith to St. Louis. Now. That's a deal that I know that many baseball fans are are well aware of, and it, it worked out well for St. Louis, but it also worked out pretty darn good for you because you're in the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame now. You played in a World Series, and you played a lot of years with number 19 uh, there in San Diego. I think his rookie year was your uh, your first season in San Diego. What were your impressions the first time that you saw Tony Gwynn? Uh, Tony, my, my first year I've seen Tony, it was impressive. I mean, you know, he came in um, as a rookie. I've seen him in spring training. It's the first time I've seen Tony. And, uh, you know, he worked hard. And, and Tony wanted to, you know, he wanted to be one of the best players. And he wanted to know what it, it took to, to get to where he needed to go. And uh, so he was always asking questions about what should he do, should he do this, should he do that. And, you know, Tony was a good listener. So he listened to a lot of the veterans that was up that year. And and then, you know, when he got his opportunity in 83, uh, he went out there and, I mean, he, you know, he did what he had to do. He, he performed very well. And, uh, you know, as you see now, he's a Hall of Famer. And he's one of the first guys, I think, that started going to the ballpark early because before Tony guys never went to the ballpark early uh, guys would just go and take batting practice or come in late he started getting to the ballpark around 1 o'clock in the afternoon whether it was on the road or at home he's making everybody else look bad <laughs> I know it I know it. It, it Tony was one of the first guys to really uh, rely on videotape too I think is that right yeah, he was the first guy to go look at all his at-bats. He used to have his wife tape all his at-bats uh, on the road. And then at home, he would always go look at video. And so he was one of the first ones to start all of that um, you know, video and everything. So 
You know, I mean, we looked at our bats, but we never looked at them like Tony did. He would take them home and study them. And, you know, he did a ton of homework on, you know, just strictly hitting. And then, you know, and now it's, it's caught on. You know, Gary, I was thinking today, I don't know if you saw it or not, but as we taped this, the Tigers and the Yankees had a pretty big brawl today <laughs> in, in Detroit, and it was crazy. You don't see a, a, a lot of these big ones. I think the bench is emptied three times in this one, and it got on my mind the brawl that happened in Atlanta in the summer of 84, which I was watching that day on uh, on TBS, and that was the wildest base brawl that I've ever seen in my life. And when I had Dale Murphy on the podcast last year, we talked about it a little bit. What are your memories of that day? Because it was just insane. Those of you out there that are listening, you can go online and find some video of it. It's just nuts. What was it like being in the middle of all that chaos, Gary? Well, it was crazy because I guess what had happened was... Um, Alan Wiggins and uh, Pasquale Perez, I guess they had had a um, something that happened in Winter Bowl. So, you know, first pitch of the game, Pasquale drills him in the back. He hit him right in the ribs, in the back. And uh, so Dick Williams, now I'm giving you what happened on our side. Dick Williams goes... Uh, he goes, look, listen, I don't care what you do. I don't want you hitting nobody else. I just want you to hit that damn Pasquale Perez. So Ed Whitson is starting. So the first uh, first time Pasquale comes up, Ed Whitson throws four fastballs at him, and he runs to the backstop. <laughs> and uh, so he misses him. <laughs> so so the, the it goes around, and then second and back, Pasquale comes up, and Whitson throws four more pitches at him, and he's running. Every time Whitson cocked his arm, he must have knew that we were going to hit him. So every time he went to throw, he would take off running. So they threw Whitson out the game, and they threw they had warned him already. They threw um, Dick Williams out the game. And so orders came down from Dick. The next pitcher, whoever comes in, hit him. Sure enough. <laughs> I think it was Greg Booker or somebody comes in, and he throws at Pasquale. So uh, I think it was Jack Crow gets thrown out and the pitcher gets thrown out. The next pitcher comes in. Because, see, people don't realize it was four pitchers that threw at Pasquale. <laughs> it was and crazy. We was down to, yeah, we was down to one coach and uh, one pitcher because what happened was they brought in Craig Leffers after all the first three pitchers that, couldn't hit them, and they got thrown out, and a coach got thrown out with them. So what they did was is they set them up, and they took Craig Leffers, put him in the game. Craig Leffers throws strike one, and then he throws another ball away. I think the count was like one and one, so now Pasquale Perez is feeling pretty good. And then Leffers winds up, and he drilled him. He, he set him up good. Which, that's what they should have did with the other pitchers. <laughs> they threw him like two or three pitches. And then Pasquale's like, oh, well, it's over with. They're not going to hit me. And all of a sudden, wow! <laughs> hit him in the rib. And once they hit him, all hell broke loose because now I guess Atlanta's frustrated because we just threw at him with four pitches. It took four pitches to hit him. 
And now they come running out the thing and running towards Leffer. So we all meet at the mound. Now everybody's fighting and scraping. And so now we got a whole big old mess going on. And, you know, it was crazy. And then once they broke it up, the fans was trying to fight with our players. And they broke that up. And then we come to plate and Donnie Moore comes up. And first pitch, he drills Greg Nettles in the back. So now the fight starts over again because now... Greg Nettles charges Donnie Moore. Now we got another big melee going. Guys are getting thrown out, everything. I know we finished the game with one coach. And uh, a player had to coach first. <laughs> I think our bullpen coach, I think the bullpen coach came in and coached third base and ran the game. <laughs> so, so, Gary, tell me, what what are you thinking as a player? Because I know nobody wants to get hurt out there. I mean, you're you're trying to make a living, and you guys aren't uh, signed for your, you know, MMA ability. You're you're signed to be a baseball player. So when the bench is clear and everybody's out there on the field, what are you, what are you thinking? I mean, I, I know you want to support your teammates, but at the same time, nobody wants to get some freak injury. I'm sure. Well, you're out there. You're, you're out there working. The, you know, you're protecting yourself with your teammates. You're out there protecting your teammates. I mean, it's, it ain't about you at that time and getting injured. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're out there, you know, fighting the, for your team. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, who started or what happens. You know, you got to, you got, you're protecting your team. I mean, you know, I could see that Posey, the catcher with San Francisco early in the year, he didn't even go out there and help his pitcher. It shouldn't have mattered. And, you know, I don't buy that, that, oh, I don't want to get hurt. Well, you don't want to get hurt. You were scared. I mean, you you didn't even protect your teammate. I mean, he would have lost respect playing with us. He probably would have had a fight once he got in the locker room with with his own teammates for not going for standing like that, being a catcher too. And for people that don't because, know, you're, uh, you're talking about the Bryce Harper. I think it was Hunter Strickland. Yeah. That yeah, uh, Strickland and, and, and Bryce and, Harper. And, uh, uh, Bryce Harper. It doesn't matter because let me give you an example. I played in St. Louis, and John Denny and, and Ted Simmons, they always they was into it all the time. But when Denny hit somebody and they in the in the and the batter tried to charge Denny on the mound, Simmons got him. Even though they didn't like one another and they would fight in between innings. But, you know, they were teammates. You help your teammate. He did nothing to help his teammate. And and then when we had that fight with Atlanta, I mean you go out there and you defend your teammates. That's what you do. You don't stand back and watch, take pictures. I mean, you know, I lost respect for the guy myself because he's a guy that I, I know I wouldn't want on my team because he wouldn't have my back. Well, I want to talk more about that 84 season, but now that you mention it, you've managed for a, a, a long time. You have a lot of experience. You've managed A ball, double A, triple A, independent ball. I mean, you've seen a lot in your career, not just as a player, but from the dugout as well. How do you believe in handling these situations in terms of the codes of baseball? Because there's a lot of criticism today. There's people that want to remove all of that element from the game. How do you look at it as a guy who has spent 40-plus years in the game of baseball? If somebody gets hit, how do you look at that as a as a manager, let's say? Well, I mean, you know, you got to remember, I come from the old school, so... You know, I still believe in the codes. I mean, you know, if some guy is going to walk up there and hit our batter, you know, and they do it on purpose, hey, you better retaliate. I, I shouldn't have to tell you 
to retaliate. And you know that he hit him on purpose. You go, you grab that ball and you go back up there and you drill one of their hitters. And you try, preferably, you drill one of their stars. And that's the way it's always been. You don't drill some nobody. You don't hit the eighth hitter. You can get him out. You know, you get that third, fourth, fifth hitter guys that's going to hurt you. You, you retaliate. I think what it is now, baseball has gotten so soft because, you know, they're always talking about these unwritten codes. But, hey, that's what made baseball what it is today. But you got all these kids and stuff now that, if you ask me, you know, they're soft. They're real soft. So, I mean, I watch a guy throw a pitch inside to a batter, and he wants to fight looking out there. Oh, you're throwing the ball inside. You know, well, hey, that's part of the game. You know, back when I played, you got knocked down two or three times. These kids today are just too soft, and they don't understand that they're here now because of these codes that was put in place way back before I even started to play the game. You know, look at look at the game now. It's soft. You can't run over the catcher. Oh, uh, look, you can't even you can't even break up a double play. I mean, come on, that's crazy. That's the one I want to ask you. You, you played shortstop in the major leagues for 16 years. Is there any validity to that, in your opinion, what they've done with the double play rules that they put in? I think it's one of the worst rules that they ever came up with simply because of the shortstop being an idiot. Even though all the shortstop had to do in that playoff game was catch the ball and get out the way. He tried to catch the ball and make a play when there was no play to be made. So when homeboy slid across the bag, I mean, to me, that was a slide that you've seen a thousand times when I played. But shortstops were smart enough to know that you weren't going to turn no double play on that particular ball. So you catch the ball and you get out of the way. So now all of a sudden you get the media and you get everybody commenting on it. It's a bad play. It was dirty. No, it wasn't dirty. The shortstop was an idiot. You catch the ball, you get out the way. Because his back was turned. And he tried to catch it and turn. And what's the name for the uh, Dodgers slid into him? Well, everybody knows you protect yourself. So now they put the rule in, you can't play, you can't break up a double play. That's stupid to me because now you don't have to teach a kid how to play around the bag. I mean, I'm watching the Padres play today. And the same thing, ground ball, guy catches the ball, the shortstop catches it, and, and the guy didn't even try to, he slid into the base. I mean, you can't even take, you can't even break up a double play to help your team. See, these are things that was put into the game years and years ago that people are taking away the fun out of the game. There's no fun. The shortstop, you don't have to have a shortstop that knows how to play around the bag or second baseman. They just stand there and turn double plays. I mean, there's no fun in it. To me, I hate that part of the game. That's a part of the game, to me, that's killing the game. Because you got – I asked somebody one day, I said, okay, you got one out, and you're playing the World Series, and you're down one run, and they hit a ground ball, and the second baseman or shortstop come across the bag, and you can't take them out to give your team an extra at-bat. I saw some of the videos that they posted of Hal McRae from the 70s. And Hal McRae, <laughs> he was taking no prisoners. Compared to the stuff that people are offended by today, 
it's nothing compared to the the way that guys were going at it back in the 70s and 80s. It was just a harder-nosed style of baseball. Well, it was a harder-nosed style of baseball because you played to win. That's playing to win. I'll never forget the first year I got called up, my rookie year. A guy hit a ground ball to second base, and I ran down there, and I just slid and shortstop turned double play. When I got back to the dugout, the manager didn't say nothing to me. It was the veterans on the team. They told me, they said, listen, you too fast to run down the second like that. Said the next time, you better get your butt down there and break up too. That second baseman better be jumping or running, trying to get out the way. You better knock him on his butt. And that was the veterans came and told me that, not the manager. And so ever since then, when the ball was hit, I ran as hard and as fast as I could to get down there to try to knock the second baseman or the shortstop back into left field or center field. It didn't matter. And I know because they was going to do the same to me. But now I watch a game, and it's, it's shameful to see that you cannot give your team an extra at-bat. Because if you saw, I seen a guy slide straight into the bag hard thing was about two weeks ago, and they had to go run a replay. <laughs> I'm like, what are you running a replay for? He slid hard into the bag, and he made contact with the shortstop. And they're, they're, they're saying they wanted to run it back to see, to make sure that it wasn't. I'm like, that is ridiculous. That's not baseball. And these are the same people that are telling oh. you they want to speed the game up, too. I'm sure it took about 10 right. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. The same people that saying they want to speed the game up. I, I, and to me, it's just, I don't know. And I talk to a lot of ex-Major League Baseball players, and everybody say the same thing. The game is hard to watch. It's a hard game to watch now, you know, because you, you, you've seen where the game was and where it is now, and it's just hard to watch. The, the style when you guys played, I mean, there was room for power in the game, but it was also a speed game. Today, and, you know, I'm still a baseball fan, but it's a lot of walks and strikeouts and home runs and standing around and waiting for somebody to hit a home run, which obviously wasn't the style of National League baseball during your career. No, National League, you had to make something happen. So you had to have guys that could run, steal bases, bunt guys over, hit and run. I mean, you don't see none of the baseball things that made the game what it is today. I mean, that's the reason why I say the game is soft because everybody wants certain things in the game. They want to, they want you to sit there and throw them a, a, a pitch right there where they can hit it. These guys don't even know how to hit a high fastball. I mean, because now a belt high, uh, just above the belt is a is a ball. Right. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, come on. A ball just above the belt is a ball. Come on, we had to we had to swing at pitches at our letters, and these guys they don't even know what that they don't even know how to how to hit a pitch like that. So the game is is, is changed to where, I mean, they can say what they want to say, but it's still the same game when it comes to analytics and this guy facing that guy. I mean, but you still got to catch the ball, you got to hit it, you got to run, you got to throw. And then the thing that kills me the most about it, these guys don't even hustle. Talking to some scouts, and the first thing the scouts say, you know, is we're always shocked when we see somebody hustle. 
<laughs> nobody runs nobody runs out ground balls anymore. You go to a big league game. I went to a big league uh game the other day. Both sides. No both sides. Nobody ran the first base when they hit a ground ball. Everybody just hit the ball and jogged. When I played, everybody ran the first base. I mean, because you didn't bobble. If you bobbled the ball, they were safe. You had to field it cleanly and come up and throw. There was a few guys that were slow to where maybe if you did bobble it, you know, you had a chance to still throw them out. But these guys don't even hustle. Shoot, I've seen a guy, a ball hit off a third baseman, and ricocheted, it bounced all the way over to the shortstop. He backhanded the ball and come up and threw off balance and threw out a guy that was a speedy guy because he didn't hustle. That's terrible. And you're right. I, I notice. Know it's terrible. I notice it every game I go to. You know, you don't see it as much, quite as much on TV. But if you're at a game, and you can just follow everybody down the line, you're right. I mean, it's it it's a problem. You know, I remember a couple of years ago, my wife doesn't know a heck of a lot about baseball, but I'm always taking her to the ballpark. And uh, we were watching. We were at a White Sox game, and they were playing Seattle. She doesn't know any of the players. She doesn't know the superstars, you know, in most cases from, you know, the everyday guys. A uh, guy hits a ground ball and just goes down the line. And my wife, she says, that guy right there, she said, that sucks. He wasn't even moving. It was it was Robinson Cano. And I said, well, I said, you're not the first person that's made that comment about him, honey. These guys today, they just don't play the game the same way. It's, it's hard watching the game. It's hard to watch these guys play today because it's, it's just not the same. I want to change the subject back to you here. That that 84 season, one of my favorite moments from your career was in the National League Championship Series in 84. You guys lost uh, the first two games at Wrigley Field to the Cubs, and, you know, the long-suffering Cubs fans were close to the World Series for the first time since 1945, and they thought they could taste it and all that good stuff, and the media probably wanted the Cubs to win. I'm sure the networks did so that they could get higher ratings. But the series goes back to San Diego. You guys down 2-0, and as they're doing the player introductions, you come out and really start getting the crowd fired up. What inspired that? Was that something that was just spontaneous for, for you at that moment? No, I've always been a fiery guy, but I always did it in the, in the clubhouse and and stuff like that. But, you know, hey... We 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 needed some we need a little spark because you know we're down. I mean we got back then it's only a three you know five game series we're down two games so we had to have something to get us fired up and uh, you know I I, would, I just wanted us to go down you know in a fight having a fight for this thing you know I I came out and I start cheerleading. <laughs> the only thing I could think about doing was cheerleading. So, you know, let's get this crowd fired up. And, and, you know, it got the players fired up, too. And we came back and took three straight. So, I mean, that's a part of history, too, coming back and winning three straight after being down 0-2. Well, Steve Garvey is a name that still, when it comes up in Chicago, a lot of people don't like it very much from what he did later on in that series. But... But you played so well. You hit over 300 in the NLCS. You hit over 300 in the World Series, too. Of course, you guys came up a little short there. You lost the series in five games to really outstanding Tigers team. What's that experience like as a player, Gary? I, I know that the dream of every player is to at least get to a World Series, and a lot of guys don't ever make it, obviously. 
you guys did, and you lost. How disappointing is that? What are your feelings when that's, when that's over? Obviously, there's got to be a sense of accomplishment that you took the pennant and you got there. But what's the reaction for a player going into that long off season, not quite getting where you wanted to be and taking it all? Well, it was tough because, you know, uh, we wanted to get, get there and finish. You know, we wanted to be like, you know, Detroit. We wanted to finish and, and come home a champion. So it was rough because, you know, we had a great year. We had a lot of great players. And, you know, uh, it, it's just hard. But we also felt that coming back in 85 that we had a, a, a great opportunity to repeat and, and go to World Series series and win it. Uh, but, you know, the winter time is hard. So you just work a little harder and uh, know that uh, where you need to be when spring training comes so that we have an opportunity to get back to the World Series. And you you came back strong personally. You guys, I think, won 83 games in 85. You certainly had a solid year. Uh, not Obviously not as good as 84, but you, you made the All-Star team personally. Uh, so you must have done something right during that off season. I want to ask you uh, for the for <laughs> the book. There are two guys that I ask everybody about who faced either one of them, and uh, you had your fair share of at bats against both these guys. I want to ask you about Nolan, and I want to ask you about J.R. Richard. I'll ask you about Nolan first. You know, since you mentioned that you were around him some when you were a kid and were telling him that uh, that you could hit him. Well, you, you got your chance later on down the line. Uh, <laughs> what was it like facing Nolan Ryan? Because one thing that I have learned in the 80-plus interviews that I've done for this project is that most guys will tell you that facing Nolan was a different kind of experience than facing just about anybody else. Take me through what it's like going up against Nolan Ryan. Well, I mean, you know, you're going up against, you know, a guy that had a fastball and a breaking ball that was electric. I mean, you know, going against Nolan, I mean, it was always the highest priority, I think, that when we looked at the list, I mean, the starting pitchers, and you would go down the line, oh, man, we get Nolan. So you better gear up. Because Nolan, you knew what he was coming with. He was coming with the best. And this guy was just unbelievable. I mean, he had a fastball that was electric. And when his breaking ball was on, I mean, you know, his, that's when he threw his no-hitters. If he had that breaking ball working off that fastball, because I would say in today's baseball, Nolan would have problems because, see, Nolan threw that fastball on a high plane. Mm-hmm. And when he threw his breaking ball, he threw it all off that same plane. Well, now that pitch he throws would be a ball, so you'd have to make him get it down. But, I mean, facing Nolan was was uh, was always the ultimate because, you know, you, you're facing one of the top pitchers, you know, in the world. So I always seen it as one of the – greatest challenges is going up and getting that hit and since i had told nolan when i was a kid that i could hit him so i always had pretty good battles with nolan uh, after he found out who i was (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, that's so great. And then, um, JR was a scary, scary experience because this man, he threw harder than Nolan. His ball moved. Nolan's ball was kind of straight. Uh, but JR threw a lot harder. And, and everything he threw was hard. I think at one time he threw me a 90 plus mile an hour slider. I mean, Ooh, that's not fair. JR. I know it's not fair. It wasn't fair to right handers. I've seen a lot of right handed hitters, you know, come up with injuries when JR was pitching. <laughs> that was called JR itis, I, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, 24 yes, hour, right. 24 hour illness. <laughs> now, I firmly believe if JR didn't get sick, that he would have been one of the greatest pitchers to ever pitch in this league and in professional baseball because if you didn't get him in the first three innings, you could forget about it. You weren't going to score no runs after the third inning because his first three innings, he was a little wild, you know. But then once he settled in, it was over with. <laughs> I mean, this guy, look at his records. I mean, he led the league in strikeouts every year. He was striking out 300 guys when when strikeouts, you know, I mean, strikeouts have gone up every year, as you know, in baseball and in right. recent years. But when Jr. was striking out 300 guys, that was back in the days when you had guys in the lineup who were just putting the ball in play. Everybody wasn't loading That's up right. for a homer. That's right. It's a good thing these guys ain't facing Jr. today. <laughs> he might have about he might have about 700 strikeouts. <laughs> Wait, he's going to strike out. You got the MVP of Major League Baseball. What is strike out? 170 times? Strikeouts aren't really looked at as a bad thing anymore, right? I know it. I know it. I mean, when I played, you couldn't strike out like that. They trade you in a heartbeat. You you ain't putting the ball in play enough. I mean, you're MVP and you're striking out 170 times. Shoot, the Padres got a guy that they paying $80 million. They say he might shattered a record for Padres for striking out this year. I think he's up to 160, 170 already. Oh, gosh, Will Myers. <laughs> Will Myers, yeah. Yeah. Will Myers is up to, he's, I think he's around 170 or something now. Yeah, he's having a rough That's year. Crazy. He's hitting like 230. He's hitting 232, and, you know, I mean, but, you know, you got to understand something. You know, he was his lifetime 250 hitter anyway, right? Right. So you pay a lifetime 250 hitter $80 million. That didn't happen. Well, obviously that kind of money wasn't in the game during your day, but guys guys were not getting rewarded with contracts for those kind of numbers, I don't think, 30, 40 years ago. No, you had to to put in three good years to get paid. That's when I played, because your first three years was very important. You had to put in some... uh, good years in order to get money. If you didn't put in three good years, you didn't get paid. That's just the way it was. Gary, let me ask you as we come down the stretch here about your managerial career because, as I said, not only have you managed, but short of the major leagues, you've managed just about every level of ball. What are the differences as a manager, whether you're managing A ball double a triple a or or even independent ball how does that change the way that you approach your job no i didn't i didn't i didn't change at all i still wanted to teach the kids how to play and uh teach them how to win the only difference is a ball 
and rookie ball, you know, you got a lot of ex- inexperienced players, and they bring their high school and their college playing, and you have to teach them how to how to play at the professional level because it's, it's, it's way different. And the game is a little bit faster because, you know, everybody that you're competing against was great in their state or wherever they were from, you know. So now you're going against top-notch players every day. You're not seeing one good pitcher a week or, you know, maybe one good pitcher over the weekend while you're in college. So now you're seeing everybody. You know, you got maybe 10 guys that's throwing 95. Not all of them make it to the big leagues, but in the minor league, in the A-ball and rookie ball, you got tons of guys that can throw 95. It doesn't matter whether they get control and, or command the pitches to move up the ladder. Double-A and triple-A, you got more experience because these guys have been in the league, so you have the experience. So, you know, but you still treat them the same. I did. I treated them the same because I wanted them to learn, get better, know what it was like to get up there to the level at the major league level so they could stay. Now, independent ball was different because you had uh, you have a chance to sign veteran players, but you also had to have a certain amount of rookies. So you had a, a combination. You would have some ex-big leaguers on the team, triple-A, double-A, A-ball. So it was a combination of players. And then but basically what you wanted to do was try to get some of those younger players that had got released from A-ball, maybe double-A, or got missed in the draft to get signed. So you, you, you're helping those kids out to try to try to get signed and, and, and get major league contracts. So it was it was kind of like a combination of players. But it was fun to manage, you know, at all levels because I did A-ball all the way up to AAA and then independent ball. And, you know, it was, it was great because I still had a chance to manage and teach. And that's what Dick Williams did. He was a manager, but he still was a, a teacher at the major league level. And, and that's what I took from Dick. Gary, what about those bus rides, though? You know, I know a lot, there's a lot of big leaguers that they like to teach, but they're not committed enough to it to go back down to the minors and have that grind of minor league life. Was that something that you welcomed? You know, I didn't even think about it because, you know, I was this way. I'm sitting at home. All I'm doing is playing golf, getting on my wife's nerves. <laughs> and so I wanted to do something. And I'm like, well... You know, I know at the major league level, there's a lot of, you know, attitudes. There's, you know, there's a lot of egos that you have to deal with. And I'm like, well, why should I go and deal with a lot of the egos when I can go and help these younger kids? So, you know, I really didn't think about the bus rides. Uh, All I was thinking about was helping a young kid to try to get to where they needed to go. And as far as the bus rides, uh, really wasn't that bad. Uh, because in the independent league, uh, we had a lot of teams that was close by. So, you know, we only had one long trip, and that was up to Chico. Um, and then uh, when I went to the over on the East Coast in the independent league over there, uh, we went to Canada a few times, you know, but it was like, I think, six hours away or something like that seven maybe six seven hour bus ride but you know we stopped and we always had great buses so and then uh, in double a it wasn't bad either because i think our longest trip was 12 hours to portland maine and it was worth it because 
that was a beautiful that place was beautiful and seafood we stayed right there on the on the ocean and so you got a chance to wake up every morning to the ocean and seafood and everything <laughs> but everything else was like four hours away or something like that so it was it wasn't bad i mean and then triple a we flew everywhere you know so it wasn't bad at all well, Gary, in 2015, you got an honor that I think was well-deserved. I wanted to ask you, I think I touched on it earlier, but I wanted to ask you about what it meant to you to be inducted into the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame. Well, you know, I think it was a great honor um, because I think the Padres finally realized, you know, what I had achieved there because as far as a position player, I had the second longest tenure of anybody to ever play in San Diego outside of Tony Gwynn and Trevor Hoffman. So I think they finally realized that, hey, you know, this guy was here for 10 years and everything outside of Tony Gwynn, he's second in everything. And so I think that they finally realized that and and realized that, uh, you know, I belong in the Hall of Fame. And it was quite an honor. I mean, to be in any Hall of Fame is an honor. And, uh, you know, it, 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 when they first told me, I, when they first called me, I thought they was offering me a job. And uh, the guy, president, said, no, you're going into the Hall of Fame, Punch Hall of Fame. And I was kind of speechless, so I didn't know what to say. But it was it was a great honor. He's a three-time National League All-Star, a two-time Silver Slugger Award winner, one of the smoothest shortstops that you could ever hope to see. Gary Templeton, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me, and I appreciate you guys taking the time. My thanks to Gary for coming on the show today. He's just a straight shooter, and it's always fun to talk to a guy like that. Some really pointed opinions, and I really enjoyed our conversation today, and I hope that you did too. You know, somebody pointed out to me recently that there's a poster of Gary Templeton that's visible on the wall in the bar During the movie Stripes, the scene where John Candy, a.k.a. Dewey Oxberger, dominates at mixed gender mud wrestling. So there's a little something for you to look for, an Easter egg, if you will, the next time that you watch Stripes. Speaking of straight shooters, my guest next week is a basketball Hall of Famer, the head coach of the 1975 ABA champion Kentucky Colonels, and still going strong in TV broadcasting at the age of 84. Hubie Brown will join me next time to talk about his coaching career through his legendary broadcasting career straight up to his thoughts on the league today. So make sure that you're here next week when I, Ricky Cobb, am going to have an expansive conversation with one Mr. Hubie Brown. And remember to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.